Hello, hello, hello. Hi, my name is Tyler Beeson, and welcome back to the station for another episode of Cruising the Planet. Today, it's just me, my friend Kelly. And uh, today, we're so happy to have you here with us, and uh, because it's spring break, we won't be having everyone with us today. They all abandoned us. Tis true, tis true. Just us. Um, so, not a... Not a super in super involved episode, I suppose. We're taking it a little bit chiller today. No yeah. segment B, no question of the week. Unless I just come up with one on the spot. You think you can handle that? Uh I can I can I can roll with the punches. Okay, we're doing this right now. Oh, right now? Right now. Right now. Gotcha. What is what are we doing? What is the superior pasta shape? What is the most superior pasta oh, shape? Oh man, that's okay. Okay, okay. I have two two answers. A and angel hair, and then B is whatever those small tube ones are that aren't macaroni. Rigatoni? Are they rigatoni? They're talking about like, they're they're like I don't want to call them triangular, but they're not. They they feel triangular, but they're not. Do you mean the ones that are like the spirally ones? They're not. They don't spiral. No, they're they're like short tubes. They're short tubes. Do you mean like the ones in the craft mac and cheese box? No, no, no. They're tubes, but they're also like they're also have like little indents. Oh. Like rigatoni? It might be rigatoni, <laughs> but I don't know their names. Why it's like, it's like, oh gosh, I, I like, you make you make Alfredo pasta with it. Fettuccine. Which one's fettuccine? Fettuccine is like angel hair, but flat. Okay, that's not that one. That's what you make fettuccine Look, with. You can make you can. There's, oh, the one that they make at Chili's, those noodles. Are you talking about orzo pasta? I don't the one that's shaped like the little rice things. I don't know. Oh my god, hang on. It's okay, Kelly. We're done with it now. No, you didn't get my answer. Oh, you're right. What's your answer, Kelly? I also have two. Fusellini and Oricelli. Fusellini and I have no clue what either it's of like those a, are. It's like a spherical one, but it's like got a dome shape, so it's like it's like flat. But it's circular and it like caves in on like one end. It's a fun shape. I'm I afraid like to even ask you how to spell that. Uh good luck. I don't know how to spell it. Perfect. So we won't look it up. Calitone. All right, guys. Wait, 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 wait. No, <laughs> hang on. Which one of these? Penne. 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 Penne pasta. Yeah, those. That's mine. That's mine. Penne. Penne. Yeah. It's penny. 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 No. I don't want to call it penny. What? Cause, Moving on. Cause, cause the, no, the, I can't. I can't do it. Because calling you. it penny in, incites the image of the the one cent coin and the. <laughs> I smell pennies. And I don't want to. You know what? I, I don't, don't even. I don't even want to know what that is. I, I no, don't want to think I, about no, that. I'm not. I'm, no, food. stop elaborating. Moving on. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> This week we'll be talking about um, what was it? Symbol? Not symbolism. Was it, is it symbol- symbology? Symbology. No, philosophies in okay. media. Yes, Philosoph- philosophies. I philosophical got, I got. explorations in different media. Yeah, philosoph. Yep. That's a lot of words. I know. Yes. So, you want to start us off, Kelly, and then I'll get into mine, or should I start? No, no, no. I feel like you have more to say or less to say about Trigun than I have to say about Bioshock. 
I would probably tend to agree with that. I, for most of my shows, I tend to not try to delve too deep into into the show. I tend to just enjoy watching it, and if a theme sticks out, then I enjoy watching it for that. Um, however, there are a couple shows that do stand out to me um, for their themes. Um, one of which is, of course, One Piece with its theme of freedom and like all that kind of stuff. But I probably won't talk about One Piece unless it we really need to. But today I've decided to talk more about Trigun, which is a good look at the ideas of pacifism. And uh, the idea of if it's right to kill, and when is it right to kill. Um, and the morals that kind of lead into that. And it's an Trigun is an interesting exploration to that, because the main character himself is probably the biggest uh, person against fighting you could ever meet. He has this large reputation of being a gunslinger, a really, really skilled uh, gunslinger. And he has this massive bounty on his head that that swarms people towards him. So he's always followed by destruction and either bounty hunters or nor there are even normal citizens that try and try and take him in. And they destroyed the whole city just trying to catch him. And all he's doing is running away because he doesn't want to fight any of them. But this goes deeper and deeper into the into the series, and as the series goes on, we see what the results of him choosing this kind of lifestyle are. So, I can't remember which episode it is. I'll see if I can pull it up here in just a minute. We see uh, Trigun. Scars. Let's see, it's that one. Yeah. Sure. What do you think? Is that is that family friendly? I can't see, man. The t the the screen is not tilted in a direction I can see it. You gotta fix the camera now. All right. So in the series, we see what the repercussions are of him choosing this kind of lifestyle. In trying not to hurt anyone, he ends up damaging himself more than not. He loses his arm. He has all these different scars because he refuses to fight back. And it's this, and it brings on this whole ideal of, brings more into like, why won't he fight back? Why won't he use his gun? Why, why doesn't he do something to defend himself other than dodging and running away? Because throughout the, st the story, we see that he is perfectly capable of doing these things. He's, if he's not the skilled, then he is one of the most skilled characters in the entire series and he's like this from the very start but he refuses no matter what controversies to do something like that until he finally is pushed beyond his breaking point so 
I don't know much about Trigun um, other than a lot of snippets I've seen of the new remake that's like currently coming out. I don't know. I've never watched it or anything like that. Something that I have seen in the small things that I have seen from Trigun is its commitment to like the story um, of the manga and of all three of the different shows is its commitment to not giving this idealized version of pacifism. So something that happens a lot when you're talking about pacifist ideologies within media is that a lot of times writers um, will give the characters with that pacifist ideology an easy way out of situations in which they realistically shouldn't to really drive home the themes of it. So like, say the choice um, that a pacifist character is like going through is, you know, fight or something bad will happen like this bad thing will happen and a lot of times there will be a secret third option revealed to them at the last minute so they don't actually have to make the choice to abandon their ideology or to have something bad happen because of it it's not an idealized version because as my understanding the original trigon ends with vash the main character killing someone right it doesn't end with someone with well, him. Well, not end, but it's, it's like towards the end. Correct. Yeah. During one of the last couple episodes, he is faced with um, having to actually kill someone. And he does do this. And it is also my understanding that his choice was either to kill that someone or two of his friends would be killed? Yes, two of his friends, which were introduced at the very beginning of the series. Um, who he had obviously grown very fond of and attached to. Um, it was either he would shoot them, or he would shoot the person, or the person would shoot them. And so, there was no ulterior motive that we could have found. Or alternative. Alternative. Thank you. Ul- ulterior motive is. I know. I know. I am. Thing. I'm mixing up my words um, today. I mean, to be fair, they sound very similar. Um, but no, like a lot of other shows, when placing a main character in that exact situation, would give a, a something happens outside of their control, and they're not really faced with the choice of affirm your ideology or abandon it. Um, whereas, so, a, as is my understanding of the original Trigun, he kills that guy, right? But he ultimately, it helps him to reaffirm his pacifist ideology because humans make mistakes. Pe- like People make mistakes, and sometimes the you know it, it, there just is no other choice like he was backed into a corner it, it's not his fault necessarily that he had to go against what he believed in for a little bit i do want to say that is correct um i also want to state that the the thing you're talking about like the secret third option is definitely i definitely want to say that's definitely prevalent in a lot of the other episodes um but yes after he after he does actually kill someone, there is a there is a I don't there is he goes through a very big grief period. He basically he has panic attacks. He has he's he questions everything. It's like he's not even the same cool, calm, collected person which we've seen throughout the entire series. Because Vash, regardless of what has happened to him. He very rarely loses it. There are maybe five times within the entire series. Like, yeah, he gets upset. Or he gets a little angry. But it's only within, like, the second half, and even bits of those second of the second half of the series, that he really starts to almost lose his cool at times. And, again, 
even at that moment, he didn't re- he didn't lose his cool, but he yes, he was backed into a corner. He felt like he had no other thing to do, and it was either them, it was either they died or they died. It's either the shooter died or his friends died, and at that time there was no there was no easy accessible thing. This person was going to kill them. He knew he would, they were going to kill them. I don't know. I think I feel like that's a natural kind of escalation the story would have after having what a literal city destroyed because of his pacifist ideologies. Yep. Uh, the multiple escala- actually. Multiple actually. Of <laughs> um, the escalation to that would be a direct, you know, effect on him because like he can just move on from the city and not really think about what his actions or I mean rather lack thereof have caused to affirm his beliefs. But if he lets his friends die, it's kind of. It, it, I think it would bring bring more of a question because, like, yeah, you can just forget a city you have no connection to, but you can't really forget your friends. So to let his friends die, it would mean he would actually have to face the things that he hadn't done. It's kind of a flip on its head. So I, I feel like that feels like a natural, not a conclusion, but like an escalation to the story. Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely agree that. It's definitely an escalation, and that's one of the things that I like about Tricon personally is that it does good with its pacing. It takes its time. It uh, some people probably would think it, that's uh bad that it's a little too slow, <laughs> but personally, I think it's a really good um set of pace, and we see how it's an understanding of who he is and how his talent would allow him to be something if he wanted to be, but because of his ideologies, he's. St- um, he, what he's become due to his ideologies. Yeah. And, uh, I think that just about covers Trigun. I know that there... And, uh, and its unique approach to pacifism. Yes. And it's a, yeah. And it's a very good series. It's considered one of the best. So I say people should watch it. <laughs> All right. Um, Kelly, you had a video game I believe you wanted to talk about. Multiple. <laughs> ah, multiple. Well, let's start with one. <laughs> it's it's a fr- it's a franchise. It's a, it's a franchise. Um, Bioshock. Bioshock. Yeah. So this is a game series, if I'm correct. True. True. I I wanted to talk just about the first two because they're kind of directly related, whereas the third one, Infinite, isn't so connected to the first two, but. The interesting thing I think about um, the first two Bioshock games, because the first one is lauded as like a work of art in video game format, and it's a showcasing of how video games are art. Um, It was one of the first games I've ever played, actually, and I think it holds a lot of replayability, especially if you only play it when you're younger, because as like what a 13 year old in like 2014 a few a few say say a few uh like seven years after it came out obviously i wasn't out there playing it as a six-year-old it came out in 2007 um like it you don't really fully grasp the story um or the theming or really a lot of the deeper connotations that the story has when you're younger so playing it when you're older and can actually recognize these things is very good but as it stands, Bioshock, the first one, um, takes a lot of its references, a lot of its kind of beats from this philosophical ideology called objectivism, which was coined mid-20th century by a Russian-American 
author named Ayn Rand, who I have a personal beef with. Um, she doesn't know I exist. I Good. just like her very much. She's, she's gonna find this. <laughs> she's gonna find this episode and just. I'm ninety five percent sure she's gonna she's send dead. <laughs> she's gonna come back to the grave and send you a send you but, a strongly worded letter to your dorm. But ba- <laughs> but basically, Ayn Rand's ideology of objectivism came because she was a. I, I think she was Jewish. Um, and she lived under the reign of the Soviet Union before moving to America. So she had a very unique experience of living within um, the confines of communism and then again within capitalism. And she kind of went, hey, both of these suck. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a philosophical ideology that basically the moral of it is that the very best way to lead a moral life under objectivism is to do whatever you want whatever it is that is going to bring you happiness negating how it affects anyone else is the moral way to live the issue with objectivism comes in the fact that it can mean literally anything if what's going to make you happy is murdering someone else objectivism states that that is the morally correct thing to do yeah and uh, i think that is where the whole we get into things like uh, John Locke and Smith that talk about things like what is justice and injustice and uh, their notions of what that means and in a society that of what I mean yes but objectivism also operates with like very and I say very little and I mean no government no justice system nothing it is all just do whatever you want everyone does whatever they want and that makes the perfect society because everyone is pursuing their own happiness which in theory leads to all of this innovation for society which allows other people to do whatever it takes to find their own happiness and it's supposed to be this endless cycle but it does not work in practice because of the nature of people personalities i'm always reticent to say that humans are inherently bad other than that there are just some people whose personalities are inherently bad. It, does that make sense? I can understand. Okay. People as as a collective are not bad, but there are bad eggs. Very much so. Um, so Bioshock basically is... I don't want to say... It's not the story of, but basically it starts with this guy named Andrew Ryan, and the name itself is a partial anagram of Ayn Rand, right? Andrew Ryan Ayn Rand. Yes. Right. Okay. And he is the same way. He is a Jewish person, grew up in the Soviet Union, and then moved to America. He made himself a very wealthy businessman. The story goes he was a very, very successful person until the Great Depression. He lost everything. And then he went, hey, capitalism isn't enough. So he picks up what's left of his money. He gets investors and everything, and he builds a city underwater calls it rapture it is in fact a reference to christianity and catholicism in that the rapture is like the select chosen few are taken are, are um the like elite i guess are chosen to be taken away to a place that is like supposedly this utopia that's why it's named rapture the place is like the city is called rapture and so it's supposed to be this objectivist society where there are no no laws of governments on anything it is entirely you know whatever just do whatever it is that you need to do to make yourself the happiest. That's what's going to make this place a perfect utopia of a city. And the the opening of the game is lauded as one of the best openings of a video game 
in the entirety of video game history. And I agree. And there is one uh, line in particular from the opening um, of a monologue that Andrew Ryan has from the opening. It's a recorded thing, but it's technically a monologue. Um, that's, is a man not entitled to the sweat of his own brow? And that's like the whole kind of ideal behind Rapture is capitalism isn't enough. <laughs> But communism isn't good either. So it's, hey, we're going to make ultra capitalism (laughs) and it's going to be entirely unregulated, entirely unregulated. There are no regulations. There are no censor, like no censorship, nothing. You do whatever the hell you want. That's it. That's rapture. And so the story goes is that you as yourself named Jack are in a plane crash in the middle of the ocean. You find a lighthouse. You enter. There is a giant golden bust of Andrew Ryan looking down from the ceiling and a banner that reads, no gods, no kings, only men. And that sets the tone for the entire game. And it is ironic in a sense because uh, Andrew Ryan kind of views himself as a god. He very much has a little bit of a god complex, in my opinion, um, because he created Rapture. So he thinks... You know, it's, it's that whole, is a man not entitled to the sweat of his own brow? He created rapture. He now is entitled to rapture. He rules over it as its king, as its god. It's ironic, and it sets the tone, because <laughs> Andrew Ryan is a hypocrite, right? The story kind of is functions as a critique of objectivism, but also just as a general exploration of it. And the game heavily, heavily implies that the only reason Rapture descended into a civil war is due to Ryan's own failure to hold on to his objectivist values. He started getting very, very paranoid about everything, and he cut off Rapture from the rest of the world, which made an opening for this guy named Frank Fontaine to start a black market um, of surface goods. You know, because you can access the surface anymore. People couldn't go back and forth. You couldn't do trade or anything. He wanted Rapture, Andrew Ryan wanted Rapture to be completely sustainable. And so it created a power vacuum that Frank Fontaine stepped into. And it was his, it was Ryan's own actions that led to Frank Fontaine gaining that power, which led to the civil war that destroyed Rapture. And you, as the player and as Jack, the character, explore Rapture in the aftermath of that civil war. You have to piece things together of the ideology and the values that ruled rapture. And I say values, and I mean the lack thereof, because the only rule of rapture was that every man was beholden only to himself, right? There was a doctor who went completely crazy, started killing his patients and like altering people's per- like appearances without their consent. And nothing was ever done because nothing could be done. Because it was what made him happy, a.k.a. the most moral choice for him to make, a.k.a. you cannot wrong him for doing that. Yeah. So it's very much this um, kind of exploration of it. And the whole, oh my god, the word, um, three-act structure, the climax of the game is you realizing that while the theming of objectivism and, and this game as a whole up until this point has been free choice, the ability to choose whatever you want to do. The climax of the game forces the player to realize that they never had any free will in the game. There was never any agency for them to be had. They are a completely ironic case walking around in Rapture. They are the one person who never had a choice in Rapture. And it forces this kind of deeper look into what was happening 
in Rapture and what was happening over the course of the game from the player. It's a very interesting kind so, of exploration of that. So how does the game exactly define or show you that, that this character has no choices? Um, how, do the, how, does, how does the game narrate that that's, that's what this character is? Okay. So you know how I was just talking about that guy, Frank Fontaine? Yeah. Through him. Right? So for most of the game, you are guided by Frank Fontaine. Except you don't know he's Frank Fontaine. He is parading around as this Irish guy named Atlas. And the only reason this works is because you only ever see him like or not. You don't see him. You only ever talk and communicate to him through like a radio. So you only hear his disembodied voice. And he puts on an Irish accent. He calls himself Atlas. He says his only aim is to get you out of here alive. I can hear that so clearly in his voice. I have played the game that many times. <laughs> and I aim to get you out of here alive. I can't do an Irish accent, but like that's, you know, that, that, that worked. The, the tonality of it. It was more British than Irish, but like, thanks. <laughs> And so he guides you around um, and you kind of pick up there. There's a bunch of these like recordings that you can pick up everywhere. And people talk about Frank Fontaine and you go to um, Neptune's Bounty and Fontaine Industries and you learn more about Fontaine. And throughout the game, you are learning more and more about Frank Fontaine and the civil war that he pretty much started because of Andrew Ryan. And then the twist of the game is that Atlas is Frank Fontaine. Like you learn it. It's this huge abject betrayal that it just it's a very personal betrayal to the player because you have known Atlas this whole time. He has been your friend. And to come to find out that he has never been your friend, he has never been looking out for your best interest, it hurts, right? Because the whole Everything point... Everything you've been doing was to further, further Frank's goals. He has been not. using you as a tool. And that's kind of the purpose of like first-person video games, especially with silent protagonists where you never get to see them you you are essentially that character you step into the role that's the point of faceless silent protagonists like that they are just a stand-in for you as the player that's why they often have little to no personality as well right yes this is this is the whole uh bella from twilight that's different that's a self-insert character and that's different we can talk about that a different time i have a lot to say about that I have a lot to say about that, especially as it relates to fan fiction, because so many people um, use uh, Katara from Avatar as a, like they erase her personality and function her as a self-insert character in a lot of fan works. I have a lot to say about that. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I think another Back game on that topic. <laughs> another game that failed that tries to do the silent protagonist thing to function as a self-insert is Fire Emblem Three Houses, and it does not work, right? Mm -hmm for a whole bunch of different reasons but bioshock makes the faceless silent protagonist work and so atlas's and frank fontaine's betrayal is abject and personal and so the the further twist of the game is that you are playing as andrew ryan's bastard son um who is basically a sleeper agent programmed as an assassin to kill andrew ryan the sleeper agent you know phrase to wake you up i don't know whatever the actual concise way to say that would be is would you kindly and that is a phrase that Atlas says to you throughout the entirety of the game. He's always, would you kindly do this? Or blah, 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 phrases up the question, would you kindly at the end? Like he always says it um, in reference to getting you to do stuff. And it prompts the next chapter or the next objective of the game. And so the whole thing is that all of these things have been like, you've just been following the game, playing the game mechanics, right? And come to find out that the twist of it all is that you never had a choice. 
you never had the freedom to make that choice because the the game is positioning this would you kindly phrase that makes it ingrained in your character's backstory and personality and mind that, that is something you have to do and now the game is guiding you on that path forcing you into that the same way the would you kindly phrase is being forcing or, or is forcing jack to do that the game is forcing you to do that as well right and it's just phrased as like the evolution and the escalation of the game itself but it's not there's a few times where you get to make choices and it's always times where atlas pointedly never says would you kindly or never tells you to do anything specific okay those are the only times you get choices. The game is very, very particular about not having Atlas say anything in those moments or not saying the phrase. So the whole thing is that free will, choice, rapture is a man not entitled to the sweat of his own brow. Everything about this, everyone has their choices. That's the whole point. You never had a choice. You are the outlier. And it's a phenomenal exploration of that. Work of art as a video game. That's, a, that's pretty phenomenal. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've always wondered about Bioshock, just because if I can just ask about the game itself. Yeah. Because I'm not sure. There's the guy in the big suit. the And then there's the little the little person on his, on the... What, I don't quite get it. What? What? Oh, I, like, the big daddies and little sisters. Yeah. That's that's a transition to game number two. Seamless. Okay. So the big daddies are basically the, they were built as like almost the workers um, to work on Rapture, like the mechanics. They could be outside on the ocean floor to like repair it on the outside because the game takes place in like the 30s, 40s. Um, one thing on a side note that I really like about Bioshock is the aesthetic. It leans very heavily into the art deco kind of art style and aesthetic that was very characteristic of the 20s. You think of like The Great Gatsby, that like grander, like kind of. I was going more steampunk personally. Mm -hmm. but no, steampunk's a little bit different. It's like, very oh, much like hydro steampunk. It's, it's sci-fi meets art deco, which can emulate a lot of steampunk, but it's not quite there, right? It's just it's just a science fiction take on like the art deco aesthetic. <laughs> Bless you. Thank so and the and the okay. So one of the things that the first game has a critique on is the unregulation um, on science because like scientists are able to go and they're not held back by ethics or morals. And so something that they discover in Rapture are called plasmids, which are the powers of the game. So if you've ever seen clips of Bioshock where he's like shooting uh, electro bolts all out of his hands or like freezing anything. That's because of these things called plasmids. They're basically superpowers that you get. That's where the science fantasy aspect of it comes in, other than giant underwater city in the 30s, right? <laughs> and the plasmids only exist because of the lack of ethics that are very much characterized by the objectivist view on science and um, evolution. Um, innovation. Um, on innovation is the lack of morality there and things holding you back. So the plasmids destroy anyone they touch that's part of the reason um why the splicers exist as enemies is because they have all gone crazy from taking too many plasmids because it is fundamentally altering their dna it's causing them to go a little crazy but something that you need for the plasmids is this thing called atom and the only way to harvest atom which are made from these little sea slugs that are found around rapture is through little sisters little sisters can extract the atom from people 
um, from the people's bodies and from the slugs themselves outside. So the little sisters become this huge commodity and people attack them all the time. So the big daddies are reprogrammed to protect the little sisters. Okay. They are fundamentally bonded. And that plays into um, a lot of the theming behind the second game. Because the second game takes a complete opposite approach um, to what the first game is. So the first game explores um, objectivism individually or in the individual over society the second game explores collectivism which is the society over the individual i feel like a lot of people very much hate on the second game but i feel like sophia lamb is an excellent foil and a follow-up antagonist to andrew ryan because sophia lamb is not mentioned in the first game at all obviously because they weren't planning on a sequel but they explain it away as she was in prison during the civil war and was only released afterwards so Two takes place in the aftermath of Rapture. It is wrapping up its story and its final legacy to the world, right? And so what is left of it is a lot of people in the slums. So the first game, you're exploring the richer and the nicer parts of Rapture. You are going against the people that were directly related to Andrew Ryan. The second game sees you walking through the slums and looking at the more impoverished side of Rapture. Because in a ultra, ultra capitalist society that is completely unregulated, like objectivism heaves and like the first game was, you are always, always going to have people who suffer because of it. And that is what you are exploring in the second game. So they come together. Sophia Lamb basically starts a cult. And you see the way she does not hold any particular care for those closest to her, including her own daughter, because she views the needs of the society and the collective as a whole as neater than or as greater than any one individual. And it comes at a detriment to her because at this point, she sees people more as tools to reach an end rather than people and it becomes a foil of andrew ryan because he saw them through his objectivist mindset as tools to reach his ultimate happiness she sees them as a tools and a way to meet or a means to an end basically it is two sides of the same coin in an extreme philosophy on you know completely differing dimensions and the funny part or i guess the ironic part as the foil to jack baker as the one without a choice you play as delta a big daddy one of the first and you function as the only thing focusing on yourself rather than the collective. You are the objectivist um, mindset rampaging through this collectivist area because the whole point is that you want to find your little sister because it's a father-daughter relationship. It's inherently a selfish thing that you as Delta are pursuing because Eleanor, um, the little sister that you're looking for, is supposedly supposed to be the best of humanity, the best of the best. She is going to save everyone. Her sacrifices are needed for the collective. And you are trying to rescue her in an insanely kind of selfish move to take away from that collective for yourself. So it's a commentary and an exploration on the collectivism and the complete opposite of what the first game explores. And it does it in a way that completely flips everything that you thought you knew about Rapture on its head by looking at opposite areas than the first game explores. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, 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 do we... Is that about the end of the show? I think I just need to... I got a little bit of cotton mouth. I've been talking for so long. Well, I, just like, I just need a second. We um, don't have a transition into the, the final bit of a show because there isn't one. So it's. 
I mean, yeah, I I don't know. You asked a couple questions about the first game. I was kind of expecting some about the second game. Well, the second game seems a little, a little more interesting in a sense. But I guess it's an interesting way to think to think about um, the idea of, oh, what is it? Collectivism, I believe is what you said. Mm-hmm. Because you're playing as a robot, right? Not a... Uh, more of a person augmented into a robot. All the big daddies used to be human. But they're programmed, correct? Yes. So, in a sense, they don't have... It's the it's the idea of this person doesn't have choice. And you know that because they're programmed to do this thing. But what they're doing is selfish because they need it for them. And thus, they're trying to go through all these other... Because I'm assuming that you fight other big daddies and potentially even other little sisters you have the same choice in the second game to either harvest little sisters for power or to spare them. And while the first game gives you no <coughs> real bless you, no yeah. real consequences or commentary on that choice, the second game does because unlike the first game, the second game has multiple endings because throughout the whole game, Eleanor is watching you and depending on the morality or the morality choices that you make, like saving or harvesting little sisters, it influences Eleanor's decisions later in the game and influences the end of the game. So Sophia Lamb at the end, without giving away a lot of the, uh, she can live or die at the end, and Eleanor can either slaughter a little a bunch of little sisters or she can save them. So like your choices in that regard have more of a consequence than they did in the first game because it directly impacts someone else. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, but I think I think that'll just about do it for today. Smooth, thanks. I'm sorry, there isn't a there isn't a question of the week, or do we? Do you want to come up with a question of the week before? I already we did that. I thought that was our segment B. <laughs> no, you don't got anything to add more to Bioshock. I talked about Trigon. Come on, I'm, man. I'm not good at this. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting way of putting... Uh, I don't know a lot about Bioshock, personally, and I I would have done a little bit more research. Uh, it seems like an interesting game that I need to look into with everything that you, you said and storytelling of it. It's definitely something that I want to look into for research for doing my own story. Though I think, yeah. Um, but I think that'll just about wrap it up for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you all for being here uh, for us today. It's a little different. Um, but of course, this one will be posted on Monday like normal. I don't think this one's going out on Twitch. No. Um, and you'll, of course, it'll be on all of our different Twitch channels. Twitch channels? YouTube. Podcast channels. Social media. Yeah, you can catch more more crews in the planet on YouTube. We upload every day at 5. Every Monday. You said every day. I did. I'm, we don't have that many. I am so <laughs> I am so befuzzled today. You can I'm find just... us on social media, you know. Um, yes. We upload find... Mondays at 5. We can also find us spotify apple music wherever you can find podcasts really and next week we will be talking uh, we will be joined by more people but we will also be talking about what is it um what makes a good adaptation so you can catch me talking more about bioshock next week too because mm, i have thoughts yes we both have things to talk about 
um, for that. And I will have a little more to talk about for adaptations than in this one, personally. But thank you all for being here for us today. Um, in case, uh, yep, thank you.